Hello and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam Etris and I'm part of the Ridge team here in Morgantown. As Christ followers, we can often wonder, what will heaven be like? Will we be busy or bored? Will we know our loved ones? Listen as Pastor Tim brings a talk from the series Homecoming, where we are exploring what the Bible has to say about heaven. We hope that this talk will encourage and inspire you as you grow in your relationship with God and others. Well, good morning. Uh, Several years ago, before we had our own facility, Chestnut Ridge Church had an office here in Morgantown in a plaza area called Chelsea Square. Our office was located on the second floor of this building, and uh, and below it were Peking House and Atlas Chiropractic. I used to love to smell the food coming up through the floor. One day, though, I was working at the office, and I happened to look out the second-story windows, and I noticed something was odd. I noticed that my car wasn't out there anywhere, it seemed. I always parked basically in the same place where all kind of creatures have happened. I thought, where's my car? And I looked at all of the places where I might have parked it, different, you know, variants of where I might have parked it, but I just didn't see it there. The thought occurred to me, someone stole my car. But when I began to think about that, I thought, no, that's not very likely. One is it's a standard, so if someone goes in to steal it, if they don't know how to drive the thing. But second, it wasn't the nicest car in the lot. I mean, there were a lot of cars out there. In fact, the thought occurred to me, if someone stole it, they could have it. And so I realized, no, it it just doesn't make sense that it was stolen either, but it's not there either, so where is this thing? And so I began to expand my search. Now, this plaza has, it's a huge parking area. And so I expanded my search, and all of a sudden, way in the distance across the parking lot, I saw the car. It was parked at an odd angle against another car. And I thought, what is going on? You know, it looked like I was trying to jump the other car or something. And, and, then, and then it occurred to me, what probably happened. Uh, I've, drove, I've driven over the years a couple different cars that were five-speed transmissions or whatever, and I know that when you park them, you always keep them in gear, and you always put on the emergency brake. I, that's just my habit. I never leave it in neutral. You put it in gear, you pull on the emergency brake. And I always did that. So I walked over to the car and I I got in the seat and it looked like it was fine. It looked like I'd put it in drive and the emergency brake was on. But then when I played with it just a little bit, I realized that it either popped out of gear or I hadn't put it in fully. Uh, In addition, obviously, I had not pulled the emergency brake hard enough. So basically, the car had rolled slowly across the parking lot until it finally stopped into this brand new car. The, 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 the temporary plates were still on it. And now it was sporting this nice little scratch and a dent and I just stood there looking at it. And then I disappeared. No. <laughs> That's what people do these days. No, I, I got a piece of paper and I, I, I put a note on there, my name's so-and-so, this is, I, I did this. Here's my phone number, call when, when you get it. And, and then I waited quite anxiously because some people are pretty serious about their vehicles, especially if it's brand new. I thought this isn't gonna be very good. 
And after a while, and it did take a while, I think it was like two hours, finally I get a phone call, hey, I'm the person that owns the car and this and that. So I, I walked out to where the car was and, and this woman confirmed to me that she had bought it the previous week. It was indeed brand new. But then she said something that was really quite remarkable. She said, you know, I was, I was starting to love that car too much. It really was meaning a little bit too much to me. And she said, also, I was just, you know, I was just worried about it getting little dings and little scratches and all. And now that this has happened, I don't have to worry about it anymore. I mean, it's almost like she said, thank you. It wasn't quite that way, but it was almost like she said, thank you. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Now, I didn't know if this woman came from a, a Christian perspective or a faith perspective, but her words, her perspective on what happened truly is a faith perspective. I mean, if you're just looking at the circumstances here, there's nothing to be happy about. At the very least, it's an inconvenience. And if you're looking at things just through the present and just through the circumstances, you would not respond that way. But a person who has a faith perspective is able to see beyond it and say, there's more to this. Now, we as Christians, we, we recognize that when things happen to us, like I talked about the tree falling next to my cabin or the animal that got in and kind of chewed things up or whatever, you know, we recognize that we have a God who's sovereign. And so from our perspective, well, there really are no accidents. There are reasons why things happen. We recognize through a faith perspective that when bad things happen, it's an opportunity for us to grow in character. Consider it great joy when you encounter various things. We recognize from a faith perspective that material things do not matter, ultimately. And so it just allows us to go through life differently. It really allows us not to have the same stresses that some people have when something goes wrong. We have a faith perspective. And this is what we're called to as Christians, to walk by faith. I was thankful, by the way, in this situation that there was no charge to me at all. I called the insurance company and they said, well, it wasn't technically a moving violation. I didn't even pay a deductible. And I, I was really thankful for it. Today we're continuing our series called Homecoming and we're talking about heaven and, and who goes there and why and what it's gonna be like. Those are some of the things we've covered. Last week I talked about the fact that Jesus said that we should store up treasure in heaven. Jesus talked about that there's a reward for the things we do in this life. That is a faith perspective. I recognize that we need to be serving Christ because we love him and Christ died for all so that we should live for him and everything else. But there are lots of verses in the Bible that talk about the fact that it really matters what you do in this life in terms of the next, storing up treasure in heaven. Last week, I defined the word reward when Jesus said, there will be a reward if you do this. There'll be a reward if you do that. A scholar by the name, by the name of J.A. Crutchfield said, it's a verb used to describe giving payment in return for something. This word refers to a reward that's given as an appropriate compensation for a particular accident or action. God is going to appropriately compensate us for the things we do that are a reflection of our faith. Last week we began to look at some of these things we can do to store up treasure in heaven. My takeaway was we need to invest in eternity. 
We need to invest in eternity. It's not about this life. And people of faith throughout the pages of the Bible had this perspective. This isn't even just a New Testament idea. Abraham in the Old Testament was looking ahead. He wasn't looking in his present day. The writer of Hebrews talks about this. He had what I would call an otherworldly perspective as he was going through his life. And in Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, we read, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. And here's the point. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. God had promised Abraham, I'm going to give you all this land. And he promised to give his kids it too. Isaac, it's your promise. Jacob, his grandson, Abraham's grandson, it's your promise as well. This is yours. Everywhere where you you step, all of this is yours. But they didn't get any of it in this life. They walked through as strangers. Why? Because they were looking beyond it. They said, well, yeah, I know God's promised to give this to our descendants and everything. I'm trusting you, God. But I'm not looking for this anyway. I'm looking ahead. Sarah... His wife had the same perspective. In fact, in verses 13 and 16, where we read about Sarah and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, all of them had this perspective. We read, they all died in faith without having received the promises. But they saw them from a distance. They said, you're faithful, God. We know you're going to do it. They greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them and for us as well. God says, you put your faith in a God you cannot see. And therefore, I'm not ashamed to be called your father. And I've got a place for you that you right now cannot see either. But it's coming. And Jesus, of course, said the same thing to his own disciples, you remember, right before he was arrested. Remember those words of comfort after he said, I'm going to be leaving you? He said, it's important that I leave you because I'm going away to prepare a place for you. But then I'm going to come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you can be as well. And for the last, I would say, 2,000 years, Jesus has been in, in the construction business in a sense. God is building a city. Jesus is involved with this, and he says, it's, that's what we're looking forward to. It's not all about this life. And because that's the case, we do not fixate on this world. And so in Matthew 6, our key verse for last week in this, verses 19 to 21, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves, store up, hoard, Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal because where your treasure is, your heart's going to be also. That's where we're supposed to be storing up treasure. And then I raised the question last week, well, what do we do specifically to store up treasure? And last week I gave you two ways in which I believe that we store up treasure in heaven. We make eternal investments. Number one is when we take care of those who are in need. When we become the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to address the needs of someone else, God loves it. God loves it when we care about those who are poor. 
And second, when we privately practice our devotion to God. What I mean by this is when we do things that, it was called piety in the Bible, you know, things like praying and fasting or giving to the poor or whatever. But when you do things not to be seen by others, but for God's eyes only, God takes note of that. God says, you know, none of, no one else can see what you're doing here, but I see you praying in your closet. I see your tears. I'm keeping track of those things. And there's a reward, a recompense, as I read earlier. Well, today I want to look at briefly four, different, four additional ways in which we store up treasure. Number three is when we serve other believers, other Christians, specifically when we serve other people of faith. God loves that. In Hebrews 6.10 we read, for God is not unjust, he will not forget your work and the love you've showed for his name when you serve the saints and you continue to serve them. Now the word saints here is not how it's used in our culture sometimes today of referring to those holy ones who died or whatever. Saints here is a reference to Christians. We're called saints, by the way. It was a word that was first earlier applied to the sacrificial system. If you brought an animal that was acceptable to offer up to God, it was holy, it was set apart. And Paul uses this terminology to describe us, people, and the writer of Hebrews as well, were God's set apart ones, dedicated to him. God is not so unjust, he'll not forget the work you do for his name when you serve the saints, when you continue to serve the saints. God loves it when we take care of those things. When it says, by the way, he won't forget, it doesn't mean it's forget as opposed to remember. It's forget, he won't forget in the sense of rewarding. He's not gonna forget what you've done. That's how this sense this is being used. God will not forget what you've done when you've loved others, when you've served, when you've given to other believers. Jesus said something similar in Matthew 10, 41 and 42. He said, anyone who welcomes a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, I assure you he will never lose his reward. God is keeping track of these things. When you support those, especially in this case, it's talking about those maybe like in ministry or whatever, like a prophet. Boy, it was hard being a prophet in biblical times. And God says, for those that opened their hearts up to that prophet and supported the work of that prophet, you're gonna get part of the reward of that prophet. When you, when you take care of a missionary, you support the work of the missionary, you share in that. That's what, that's what Jesus said here. You will not, you will not lose that reward. You'll never lose it, he says. Now again, what the reward is, you have to listen last week. And I think this makes a huge difference. God loves it when you care for those who are either just believers in Christ where you just give them water because you're a brother or sister or you help support them in ministry. Many of you know I didn't want to become a pastor because of two things. My dad was a pastor and I didn't, um, he, he was working all the time. I was just constant. It was like 24-7. He was, he was always working. That was part of it. But the other thing is he wasn't, he wasn't paid well. I'm grateful I'm not in that situation. I, but it was very, very hard for my dad. 
Uh, he just couldn't, you know, we had three brothers or four of us. We just, there just wasn't enough. And, and my dad once told me that the board of that church, and again, I'm so grateful we have such a supportive board here, but the board of my dad's church had the perspective that ministers should only make about three quarters or two thirds what an average person makes. I forget what the percentage was, but they specifically thought that what we want to do with our pastors is we want to give them uh, not enough money to live on because we want them to trust God for their finances. They spiritualized it. It's not that they couldn't afford it. They were trying to spiritualize it, saying, we want you to be in this constant need of spiritual need so that you'll be on your knees because we need a praying pastor. Of course, the Bible says specifically, don't do that. Don't, don't muzzle the ox while it's threshing. He was working hard, not able to make it. And so what did my dad do? He said, well, I got to get another job. So he went to the board and he said, um, could I earn some extra money by becoming a substitute teacher in the public school system. And the board's response was, you can if you do it on your day off. My dad had one day off. If you do it on your day off. My dad didn't have a choice, so suddenly he was working seven days a week. And he hated it. The kids were merciless. <laughs> They'd call my dad old baldy. I don't know where they got that. He hated it. And I looked at all of that and I said, who wants this? Didn't want to do it. You know, God has ways of getting you where he wants you, of course. But there were a couple families in that church that when we had needs, they stepped in and nobody knew about it. One was a case when my twin brother and I, we didn't have a bed to sleep. I don't remember what our situation was. I think we were sleeping on sleeping beds or sleeping bags. We didn't, have, we didn't even have a bed and somebody in the congregation knew that. And one day a truck pulls up to our house and it had a whole bedroom set. It had bunk beds, it has a couple dressers, it had some tables, it had just an entire bedroom set, and they just gave it to our folks. I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe anyone had that kind of money to start with. I'd never met anyone that had a lot, enough money, but the fact they'd give it, they just gave it. And even as a kid, you know, when I was maybe 12 or 13, even as a kid, I thought, bless them. Bless them that they saw that need and were willing to take care of that. And I believe they're going to share in the ministry of my father who served the Lord until he was about 86. He finally retired for like the fourth time in serving as a chaplain. He just kept serving God, leading people to faith in Christ. You share in that. You give to missionaries. You help support this person. This person's righteous over here. They're, you, you come along, you help them. You share in that. So we invest in eternity when we care for those in need. We privately practice our devotion to God. We serve other believers. Four, when we live in anticipation of Christ's return, when we live in such a way that demonstrates that we're mindful that Jesus is coming back, and therefore we live a certain way because of it. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day and not only to me but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul, he was toward the end of his life. And he said, you know, I've run this race. I've, that's it. So what's, what am I looking forward to with that day when I'm going to get this crown of righteousness which the Lord is going to give me on that day? But he said, I'm not the only one getting the crown of righteousness, also those who have loved Christ's appearing. 
those that live in such a way as they're mindful that Jesus is, is coming back. Now, what is this crown of righteousness? Well, let me mention that in the Greek language, there are two different words that are translated crown. Uh, one of them that's translated crown in our English Bibles is the word for a, like a royal crown, like a king would wear a gold crown. Uh, the other, it's also translated crown in our Bibles like this, but it refers to that wreath that an emperor would give the winner of an Olympic race. You would cross the race, you cross the line, you were the winner, and before the entire stadium, you were marched over to the emperor and he would have this wreath that he would put on your head. It was a victor's crown. And oftentimes it's just even made with you know, tree things and whatever, but to the runner it was much more important than any kind of gold crown. And it's the second one, of course, that Paul is talking about here, that you, you run this race, you're faithful to the end, you're mindful of Christ coming back, you lived in such a way, this is waiting for you. And I imagine as Jesus is putting that on your head, he's saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, what is the crown of righteousness, though? Well, there's some discussion about that. A, a scholar by the name of Litfin writes, crown of righteousness can either mean that righteousness itself is the crown or reward. In other words, it's a crown bestowed upon you that consists of righteousness. In other words, God is declaring you righteous in the presence of all. Or it's the crown, the crown itself is the reward for righteousness. I think it's more the latter. It's something he's gonna give you because of the demonstration of your righteous life. But it's probably both. And this, this comes to play in a lot of decisions we make. We believe Jesus is coming back and impacts how we live our lives. For example, every time you decide not to commit a certain sin, because in your mind you're thinking, well, Jesus is coming back. I don't want to do this. I want to do it, but I don't want to do it. And you choose to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. It's a reward of righteousness. Every time you do that, it's, a, it's faith, because a person without faith is going to sin. Why wouldn't you? But you're saying no to sin because you want to say yes to this other thing. And there are going to be a lot of rewards related to that thing. Number five, when we're persecuted because of our faith in Christ. Matthew 5, 11, and 12, you're blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christians are often so surprised that we are, we're given a hard time. We're given a hard time because of our convictions about certain things, our beliefs about certain things, or our lifestyle. You know, Paul wrote about this, that people will, will really be bothered by the fact that we don't do some of the things they do. They go out and get drunk and this and that, and we're, we say, well, I'm a Christian, I don't do that, and they mock you for it and whatever else. And... As Christians, of course, we live different lives, but sometimes we're surprised by the fact that people are bothered that we live differently. Jesus was saying, don't be surprised. I mean, Paul wrote the same thing. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that, sorry, Peter said that. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes upon you for your testing, as if it's a strange thing. And Paul wrote to Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So when you're going through the difficulty, you know, you, you wonder, well, should I fight back, whatever? Jesus said, rejoice about it. You know, when Peter and Paul were arrested and beaten in Philippi, they were, 
They were rejoicing that they had the privilege to suffer for Christ. That's a faith perspective, for sure. Now, in this country, we'll just be, I don't know, people say bad things about us. I've known some people who have lost their job because of their faith. I've known some students who, who got failing grades on papers because they were Christians. I, I know some examples of all those things. But for the most part, we won't, it won't be like some countries where if you profess your faith in Christ, you'll be put to death. What I do know is there are several verses that indicate that to the degree we suffer with Christ, to that degree we're going to reign with Christ. That there's a special blessing, a special reward associated when we suffer for Christ. And so Jesus said in Matthew 5, 12 again, be glad, rejoice, your reward is great in heaven because you've aligned yourself with these, even the prophets. They were persecuted too. Don't be, again, don't be surprised at the fiery thing that comes upon you for your testing is out strange, Peter said. And sometimes we're going to suffer for faith, but it's an occasion for rejoicing. Finally, um, number six here, when we participate in the work of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 3, 8 through 15, the apostle Paul was talking about uh, a, a fellow leader in the church in Corinth named Apollos. And he, Paul, had come to Corinth and shared the gospel with the, the people there and they put their faith in Christ and the church was born. So Paul planted the seed of the gospel. A little later, this other guy, a, a very gifted leader came in, a guy named Apollos, and he came and he watered the seed and he built up disciples. And so Paul would have been more like an evangelist Apollos would have been more like a pastor. But what was happening in the church in Corinth is that they were arguing among themselves who was greater. And some people were saying, well, I'm a follower of Paul. And others were saying, I'm a follower of Apollos. And Paul wanted to just stomp that out. He said, listen, we both had different jobs. But there's a unique reward for each of us. Because both of them were involved in the gospel. And I believe that when we are involved with the gospel, we are storing up treasure in heaven. So Paul wrote in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 3, he said, Now the one planting and the one watering are one in purpose, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Skipping to verse 13. Each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it. Now, there's a day of judgment when we stand before Christ. Whatever work you've done in terms of the gospel will become obvious. Because, it says, it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that, has, that he has built survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's, anyone's work is built, burned up, it will be lost, but he'll be saved. Yet it, it will be like an escape through fire. Now, what's he describing here? Well, I don't think it's going to be necessarily a, a real fire, although the final judgment is a judgment of fire. But he is describing th this idea that the same fire that burns up one material proves the authenticity of another. And so he's saying, basically, if, if you built your, your effort in serving Christ and the gospel and you use materials that are, aren't, weren't very good, you know, straw and hay and wood that are going to all burn up, well, the, when, the, when you stand before Christ, that's not going to remain. I mean, you'll be saved, but that won't remain. But 
If your work is like gold, you see that same material subjected to fire or silver subjected to fire, it proves its authenticity, its worth, its value. It will endure. And I think that the things we do for the sake of the gospel, if they endure, and if they're done on the right motives, both of these things seem to matter on judgment day. Why did you do certain things you did? And did it endure? And one thing I want us to understand about the gospel is every soul that is saved, everyone who puts their trust in Christ, that's, that's a fruit that's gonna remain. It's a fruit that's gonna remain. And Jesus suggested, and I hinted at this last week, Jesus suggested that, that when you get to the other side, you'll actually be able to visit those people that you impacted for Christ. He gave an interesting parable about a landowner who had a manager who mismanaged the landowner's things. So the landowner was gonna fire the manager. Well, the manager realized he was going to get fired. Now, this is Jesus' parable, his story. He realized he was losing his job. And so he did something really slick, if I could put it that way. He went to all of the individuals that owed money to his master. All these people, companies or individuals that had contracts with his the landowner, and he lowered the amounts they all owed across the board. So he went to one and said, how much do you owe? They said, well, 100, whatever. And he said to them, well, cut it in half. You only owe 50 now. Went to another one, what do you owe? Well, cut it by a third. Went down the line to all of them. Why did he do it? What's interesting about this parable is that, that Jesus commended the guy for his dishonesty. It wasn't for his dishonesty. That's not what Jesus was commending. What Jesus was commending was the thing he did, which was prepare for the future. See, what this guy was doing was he he knew he was going to lose his job, and he didn't want to go out and dig ditches, and he didn't want to beg for money. So what, what would he do? The moment he lost his job, he started hitting up those one at a time. Hey, listen, remember how I took care of you? I'm going to come and visit. I want to stay with you for a year. Remember how I took care of you? That was his retirement plan across the board. And the, the, the landowner commended him for it. He said, that was really pretty brilliant. It wasn't honest. Jesus wasn't saying it was honest, but this idea of, of thinking ahead. But Jesus applied this in an interesting way. He said in Luke 16, 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money, earthly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. The implication is they'll invite you in. I think of different ones I've led to faith in Christ. I might be able to visit in the next life. It'd be a wonderful thing. I have all eternity to visit with people. And we all do as well. But it's a wonderful blessing to be about this thing called the gospel. J.A. Martin put it this way, one should use money to win people into the kingdom. But I'm just making the point that that any investment in the gospel is going to reap as people put their faith in Christ. It makes a difference. So the bottom line is it matters where we invest in eternity. And there are at least these six ways. I'm sure there are others. But when we take care of those in need, when we privately practice our devotion before God, when we serve other believers, taking care of their needs, when we live in anticipation of Christ's return, when we're persecuted for our faith, and when we participate in the work of the gospel. It really does matter 
how we live because there's more to this life than this life. So let me close with some questions of application. Number one, what might it mean for you to live for eternity? What would that look like? If, if you say, I'm gonna start living for eternity, you know, what would that look like? What changes might need to take place in your life if you chose to live that way? And where could you invest to get the greatest return on investment in the kingdom of heaven? I, I just encourage you to think about that for a little bit. Where would I want to invest to get the greatest ROI, the greatest return on my investment? And I encourage you specifically to decide one thing that you're going to do as a result of what we've talked about. Now, next week, I want to close off the series on heaven by talking about an uh, un ugly subject of hell. And I think, I think you'll want to come back for that. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, I want to thank you that you have called us to be co-workers for you, co-laborers with Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the privilege of serving you. And I'm just amazed at that, Lord, that you, you give us a privilege of serving and then you reward us for the work you do through us. We don't deserve any of this, but we're grateful to you and help us, the Lord, to live in such a way that reflects this faith that we have in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.